You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Lee Studios from Leadership for Educational Equity. Hello, Taylor, and hello to all the civic leaders out there. Hello, listeners. We are so glad you joined us, and good morning to you, Cindy. How are you feeling today? You know, considering all the things going on in the world, I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Good. Well, then you're probably going to love our conversation with Carlos Mark Vera. He's an incredible change maker who identified an issue he was passionate about and took action, resulting in millions of dollars of funding from Congress, thousands of paying internships, and the start of a nonprofit, all landing him on Forbes' 30 under 30 list. He did all that before 30? Yeah, and he's still actually not even close to 30 yet. It's wild. Anything else I need to know? Well, in the interview, Carlos and Jason talk about the organization he co-founded called Pay Our Interns, sometimes referred to as POI, and they also reference the Head Start program. Oh, okay. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with it, Head Start provides early childhood education, health, nutrition, and parental support services to low-income children and families, all things that are important for kids to grow up healthy and be lifelong learners. That's right. Okay, I think we're all set to get started. I'll get us going then. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the Leader's Table with Carlos Mark Vera. Carlos Mark Vera, welcome to the Leader's Table. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, Forbes 30 Under 30, Echoing Green Fellow, Aspen Ideas Fellow, a young social entrepreneur who's gotten Congress to commit $31 million to bring an idea about racial equity that you advanced for years to change the reality for, for young people growing their careers. Where did that fire for change and perseverance to take an idea into reality come from? I think it's two parts. The first is life experience. Um, a lot for me was during the 2008, you know, economic crash that really hurt my family. And, you know, we had our house foreclosed, you know, temporarily ended up in public housing. So we went through a lot of issues. And I think living that really showed the other side of America that we don't talk about often enough. Now we are, you know, about the pandemic. But the part that really showed me that I, I can actually make a difference was at American University, I had launched a worker rights campaign to advocate for custodials, uh, workers, and cooks. And after three years of doing that campaign, I convinced the administration to create a full ride scholarship for the children of workers. Because if you're a child of faculty member or staff member, you basically work for free. If you're a child of a custodial worker, you had to pay full tuition. So I, having that win really opened my eyes that you know you don't have to be rich or powerful to create change. And it ultimately boils down to not being scared to reimagine what could be. And how do you take that idea and make it into reality? Connect for me a little bit the connection between paying interns and racial and economic justice and equity. For me, the tie really comes down to, you know, in a big picture, we know that white families in America have 10 times more wealth than black families. At the same time, internships on average can cost $6,000. For a summer, if you're talking rent, 
transportation, professional clothing, food. And on top of that, the way that our job market is at this point, you kind of have to intern to quote unquote, get your foot in the door into you know different pathways. Most BIPOC folks just don't have five, $6,000 laying around. So what's happened is they're not interning. Um, it's usually you know white well-off interns. And if you look at the institutions, whether it's journalism, our government, business, at the top, it's mostly white men. And I would argue partially that's because of unpaid internships. The last part is there was a study that came out in 2019 stating that eight out of 10 college students nowadays are actually working and they're working basically just to pay for college tuition and bills because you know that keeps on going up. Forget about the internship component. Uh, so that's obviously making it worse. So when I think about your work, this is a lot more than getting Capitol Hill interns paid or um, other kind of government interns. This is this is a much bigger issue than that, right? Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, just to add to that, uh, NACE did a study of employers every year, and they asked them, you know, what's the number one thing you want from a college graduate? And it's always work experience slash internships, because it serves as a signaling device that the student is ready for the job market. What's happening is a lot of you know black Latino students, they're in college and they can't afford an intern because they're working busy, you know, to pay for school. So they don't take those internships. They're working at fast food retail and they graduate like, yay, awesome, you're first gen, but you don't have experience in what you studied for and you don't have the networks that your counterparts have to get you in the door. So they're not getting callbacks and not getting hired in the industry that they had studied for. And now they have to pay their student loans. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, and this, to your point is across several sectors. It's more than just government. I call it the glamour sectors. So journalism, sports, um, fashion, venture capital world, the you know, it, it, there's a lot of sectors, education. I mean, I can go on and on. So what was the road from translating that idea that was burning at you to winning a congressional, um, winning Congress's approval of $31 million and launching an organization that's gonna go and make big structural change. You know, it goes back to personal experience. I did three unpaid internships. I did one in Congress, at the European Parliament, and then the White House. And of course, you know, when you're doing these internships, you're not thinking of, oh, I deserve to get paid, right? Like it, you're kind of conditioned to be like, quote unquote, pay your dues and all that stuff. But I struggled each time. And, and you know, two, moments for me that I think were important was first on the Hill, you know, walking down the hallways of Congress and realizing that no one looked like me except the custodial staff, right? And this is the body that formulates $2 trillion, how much goes for Head Start, for SNAP, for HBCUs. You know, it, it matters who's there, right? Personalized policy. And then the second was at the White House where I was required to wear professional clothing every day. Because, you know, most internships, obviously you have to dress nice, but like a khaki, you know, and a button up is okay. At the White House, that does not fly. You know, if you have to basically wear a suit every day. And I only owned one, you know, so my family kind of pitched in and, and bought me another one. You know, and at one point someone had made the comment like, do you have other clothing? <laughs> and it's like, no, and you're also not paying me. So you shouldn't be asking those questions. Yeah. But for me, the moment where like I had started thinking about this my last year at AU 
and a fun fact, I'm actually a college dropout. I just went back a year ago to, to graduate, but I had started thinking about it. And I was like, okay, this is something that everyone does. And there's no organization focused on, on, you know, intern advocacy. Right. So the moment where I kind of said, okay, I got to do something now was talking to my uh, mentee who had admitted that he had skipped out on buying groceries to pay for the dry cleaning costs for his unpaid internship. So at that point I said, you know what, this cycle needs to stop. So I quit my job um, and I started October, 2016, pay our interns. And from, take me from, I started the organization to this organization okay. could actually live. And, you know, we got Congress to, to say yes, $31 million to, to actually make some change. It's actually 48 million at this point. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, when we started and I think it's very much like, it makes it sound like it was a walk in the park when it was not. You know, I started this with like 800 bucks, aka my last paycheck. People talk about like seed funding. I thought that's what you did as a gardener. I had no idea about entrepreneurship. <laughs> like, because you know, folks, like the way you do it is you talk to investors for like a year, you give them your pitch, they give you the money, then you did the work. I did the opposite. I was like, let's get this work done. It was myself and Guillermo, who's another fellow Latino, and we first decided with Congress because we're both former unpaid interns and it's also the largest employer of unpaid work. But when we reached out to congressional offices, no one responded except two offices. You know, so we were not really taken seriously and our concept seemed very far-fetched. It's like world peace. It sounds nice, but it's not attainable. For us, the turning point was we spent four months collecting data on which offices paid, which ones did not because that data was not there. It's kind of like DI data. It's just always ironically never collected by organizations. And then we used that data and leveraged it, pushed offices to be like, hey, we're releasing this, this is gonna go public. Do you wanna be on the list that pays or the one that doesn't? So we started getting offices. And then it wasn't until 2018 that, you know, we worked with a bipartisan group of legislators and, you know, a miracle happened and they passed 5 million and the house passed 8.8 .8 million and we just kind of kept on gaining momentum. But I think something that's important to note is our professional successes did not match the fundraising that you know we had done. It was very tough to get funding. And I think part of that is that we both were young entrepreneurs of color. You know, funders did not want to give us money. We were talked down to, somewhat belittled. It was very difficult. At what point did you know that this would have a chance of actually moving through committees in the house and becoming a piece of legislation that would actually create money. How did you know that that was going to work? I've actually never said this publicly, but the Senate was the first body that, you know, took it up. It was very much the, the $5 million concept was the idea of Senator Schatz from Hawaii. And he tried to put it in, but the subcom subcommittee chairman who was a Republican back then was not for this idea and said, nope. So basically the concept of money for interns was dead on arrival. And, you know, it was, I would say May and the, the day that they were supposed to vote on it in committee was June 14th. We had a month and a half of really trying to convince offices to say yes. And at that same moment, we had about $1,000 in bank account for POI. <laughs> So I had folks being like, you need to focus on fundraising. And I was like, I get that, but this is such a, like a one in a million chance. Like we have to take it. You know, I, I rather give it that we give it our all and fail than say, you know, what could have been. And we pushed, we pushed, 
it seemed like he was dead. And then the night before the vote, Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska, said, yes, I will vote for this. And once she said yes, so did Susan Collins. And then the day of, it passed unanimously without an objection. So we knew it was going to happen the night before the vote. <laughs> Amazing. Do you remember yeah. the stories that were that moved Senator Schatz and, and ultimately got Senator Murkowski to, to sign on? So the, interestingly enough, they both were actually champions of this to begin with. But one story that for me is very telling was CNN actually wrote an article about three interns. One was Latina and their experiences being unpaid interns. And one like walked like six, seven miles to the hill because she couldn't afford transportation. And uh, Senator Ben Ray Lujan actually read the article and it inspired him. And then he wrote some legislation related to interns. So, you know, those stories do matter mm -hmm. uh, and they can move the needle. You know, I appreciate your work so much um, personally because you know, most people in DC know me as an alum of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. Mm -hmm. We have paid internships, paid fellowships, have been doing this for 20 plus years. Yeah. But my first DC experience was during college. I came and worked mm -hmm. for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan mm -hmm. in, the, in the Senate at the time. And when you tell your story about having one suit, I remember that I was in college. Mm -hmm my first time I grew up in the projects of Brooklyn I got up to college and was like okay well you know <laughs> all right I got it out of the, I got out of the projects I got to college and now I'm going to be in DC but nobody told me that I had to fund that thing I came to do an internship through the the um, the Washington Internship Institute mm -hmm. unpaid so you wind up taking out the loans then you have to pay for the suits and you just have to figure out how to actually make it in DC for that time that you're there. I sold my turntables. I was a DJ growing up. I sold my wow. turntables. Luckily, help kept the thousands of pieces of vinyl to pay for that that experience in DC. But in our time, until you did this work, that was just the reality for the grand majority of interns. Either you did it because you could just afford it, or you just didn't do it because you couldn't figure out how to make it through, or if you did, you knew that you were gonna come out with debt, with credit card debt, or just yeah. not having a, a great time. So I just personally appreciate what you have, this idea that you've advanced that is real, it's, it's transforming that experience um, for young professionals uh, at a time when it's even much more expensive than it was even when I was a very young intern. Talk to me a little bit about what this means for diversity on the Hill. And then I want to talk a little bit more about what it means for, as the idea catches on, what it could mean for diversity in other spaces, whether corporate mm -hmm. or banking or, or any other place where um, you are, where you're advocating. So we we actually completed a study that's coming out uh, quite soon, you know, because one thing it's important to note is like, okay, the money's there, right? It's been 48 million. You're talking about over 10,000 people getting paid through this fund in just under two years, which for me, you know, is historic. And we started doing studies of, you know, what is the percentage of Latinos and, and, and black interns? And it's showing that it's increasing, you know, like shocker, if you actually pay people, you know, you're probably gonna get more applicants of color. And that's one thing we saw at the DNC, that was another of our wins. We convinced the Democratic National Committee to pay their interns and in one cycle, from when they weren't paying to their pain, the interns of color 
jump from 18% to 42% in one single semester. Mm. You know, just showing when you pay. I think it's also important to know it's not just about payment, but it's also about being intentional about your outreach. Because what happens is you say, oh, it's paid, but you don't do outreach to the HBCUs, community colleges, state schools. And on the flip side, you have some schools with large endowments that have the staff and the teams that will make sure that their students have the resources to take advantage of it. Because I think that's also something important to note is rich students have it well, like they can work for free. And if it's paid, they'll make sure they get that internship. So it's been changing the diversity you know, on the Hill, which is pretty bad. You know, you have some committees that are like committee of like Native American affairs and there's not a single Native American staffer. Right. Uh, but it matters who's there. And, you know, I, I talked about Head Start. In Congress, they're deciding how much money goes to those programs. Right. Like if you don't have people that have been part of that, it's not going to be the same thing. And, you know, I knew someone that worked in appropriations and they were having one of those meetings is like how much they were going to fund Head Start. And they had the ability to speak up and say, I'm a living product of Head Start and I would not be where I am without it. and was able to save it from getting cut or like, mm-hmm. you know, um, receiving a cut from their budget. So that matters. The second part is, and this probably doesn't get enough coverage is there has been a byproduct of Congress paying their own interns, because obviously this only applies to them. But once they did that, it really sent a strong wave, especially around the Washington, D.C. area, where you started seeing nonprofits flip and start paying their interns. Because it was kind of like, okay, well, if Congress has gotten their act together, we need to follow in suit. So you have some large nonprofits, like the Human uh, Rights um Human Rights Watch now paying National Association of Women. Emily's List has increased her stipend. And then the other part, which for me is really exciting, is you have young folks across the country doing their own campaigns. Like they've, they're inspired by what we did. And they're kind of like, well, if they can do it there, why can't we do it in our own hometown? Mm, absolutely. In terms of the future of your organization, um, when you think about the impact you want to have over three, five, 10, 20 years, inspiring another generation, what what are you aiming for? I think the first is we're expanding beyond government. So we're really looking at the other sectors that don't pay, which obviously is a big feat, but we think we can do it, you know, with the right scaling um, and structure. And one of the key things here is, and I'll give you an example, There was a student named Jordan who was a student at Temple University in Philly and was interning for the mayor. And the mayor came out saying, oh, you know, we need to pay everyone $15 an hour. And he said, well, how about us? (laughs) You know, they're not getting paid. And he actually launched his own campaign there. And, you know, we heard about it. We connected. And this was back in 2018. And we said, look, we don't have a lot of funds to give you, but we can amplify your efforts and get you some media. So we connected what he, they, he was doing in Philly to what we were doing nationally. It got the mayor's attention. The, you know, the city came out saying there's no money for this, right? Because there's never money for stuff like this. But after enough pressure, the mayor's office caved in and now the program is all paid. So for us, I guess the next question is, how can we provide resources and support 
for change agents like Jordan across the country. Because I think that can really, you know, turn the tables. And then the second part is we are trying to replicate what we've done in Congress in all 50 state houses, which I think will be very, you know, impactful. So one right now we have a campaign in the California state legislature. The reality for for young professionals of color, um, not just in facing the 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 economic barriers to to entry, but also the social cultural barriers to entry is so real. So when I think about you changing the status quo in state houses, right? You think about fifty states, a history of uh, of intentionally kind of crafting who gets to do that work in those spaces. What do you? What would you predict over the next several years if? I don't know, half the state houses in the country started to pay their interns. What would what would we see over time? Well, kind of like in Congress right now, you know, they, they're paying. The next step is we're pushing them to then fund like federal agencies and then pass laws. So last year they passed a law that extended civil rights protections from not only federal employees, but federal interns. Because fun fact, according to a lot of uh, labor law across the states, if you don't get paid, you're not employee, thus you have no protections. Mm. So our goal is once you can convince the legislature to pay their interns and they like it, then you push them saying, okay, how about this other sectors? How do you crack down on employers that don't pay? So we really envision a future and it's not that far off where we're gonna have institutions that reflect our communities, right? Where it's not gonna be an anomaly seeing a black leader or Latino leader. So that's kind of one of our goals. Carlos, I want to uh, offer, I want to ask you a few short answer questions. So these will be answers about one to two minutes each. So if you could snap your fingers to make one change for kids and communities today, what would that one thing be? For me, it would be to get rid of the system where schools are funded by the property taxes of the neighborhood, because that inherently disadvantages folks that live in poor communities. And how, what would you change it to? it would be, you know, equity based. Mm -hmm. So, you know, folks that live in Beverly Hills and they're paying the property tax for their school, some of that money would also go to folks in East LA and so on and so forth. What's one tool, a skill or a resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you just wish every other leader in the world would know about and use? For me, it would be the book, Social Startup Success. It's written by Kathleen Janis, who herself was an entrepreneur. It just really breaks down the nuts and bolts of starting a startup from fundraising, board development, operations, and strategic planning. That's great. We'll link to that in the, in the show notes. And what's a piece of advice you would give your 23-year-old self? So I'm 26 now, so yeah, three years ago. For me, it would be to not be scared to say no and to have boundaries. And I think that's something that's pretty difficult. People always say, oh, you know, find what you love. And, you know, you always do it. And it's like, yeah, but you just end up getting more work from people. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting question to ask you at 26 years old, but let's give it a shot. What's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? So my little sister is actually senior in high school. So she's a Zoomer. They are fearless. You know, like, yeah, I was quote unquote kind of woke in high school, but I wasn't going to Black Lives Matter you know, rallies and marches. I wasn't posting about that. I wasn't agitating to that sense. They're not scared about that. And that fearlessness, I really think is going to benefit them. 
Who's the hero that inspires your work today? For me, one leader that really inspires me was uh, Shirley Chisholm. Just her bold advocacy. Um, she really was the first, right? The first Black woman elected to Congress. And her whole idea of not only, you know, gaining power for herself, but ensuring that there was a pathway for people behind her is key. And, you know, her whole saying about making sure that, you know, we have a seat at the table. Yeah. Unbought, unbossed. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely amazing. And you think about um, think about the time period in which she was uh, doing things publicly. It's just pretty amazing. Right. When we think about your future, when we think about like ten years from now in your own career and advocacy, your service. What will we be seeing in your future? I've learned that life has a beautiful way of throwing wrenches at what you want. So I don't have like ten year plans. Believe it or not, I more have like a sense of direction. I don't think I'll be at PR interns 10 years from now. I'm a big believer in, you know, passing the baton. So that's a good question. I, I do think, you know, in a couple of years, I eventually would like to end up in the federal government, say Department of Labor, Department of Education. So, you know, as an advocate, I'm kind of pushing from the outside. But in those agencies, you're actually implementing the work. So for me, that'd be kind of interesting. Hmm. And listening to this podcast right now is a young person. Um, she is... 22, or she might be in college, or she might even be older than you are, Carlos, uh, in her 30s, thinking, well, I, I want to take this big idea for equity and bring it to reality, or I want to start an, uh, you know, a movement or an organization to, um, to make the world a better place. What advice do you give to her? The first I would ask her is, is there a similar organization? Because <laughs> I, I do see there is this just everyone starting an organization. And that's great, right? But if there's already folks doing that work, the question should be like, how can I support that? How can we team up and amplify that? But if it is something new, you, that you really have to have thick skin. You have to have a sense of a North Star and ignore the naysayers. Because you're going to hear it a lot, not just from investors or stakeholders. You'll hear it from your own family. And I heard that a lot for you know several years. Now people are like, "Wow, okay, I see it." And you just have to be very sure of who you are, what you stand for, and what you're fighting for. Carlos, I enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for your for your generosity of of spirit, your wisdom, your work, and your perseverance. Where can people find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at carlosangeles25 or follow us at Pay Our Interns, and that's the same for both Twitter and Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carlos. We'll talk Thank to you, you again. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, that was Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table with Carlos Mark Barra. Well, Taylor, do you have any good takeaways from the conversation? I mean, yes, so many. But my brain keeps circling to the fact that Carlos is only in his 20s, and he already has years of experience under his belt, and the impact of his work can be seen literally across the country. Carlos is a perfect example of it never being too soon to start making change. He was able to use his personal experiences to identify issues of inequity, find a place where he could make a difference, and then he just did it. And as you heard, all without a mountain of cash or a bunch of formalized supports. Yeah, it's interesting to hear how after the funding for paid congressional internships was approved, many of the other nonprofits around D.C. decided to start paying their interns too, 
And his work encouraged young folks around the country to stand up for themselves and secure funding for their own local internships. Now that's impact. Oh, for sure. And Carlos mentioned a book, Social Startup Success by Kathleen Kelly Janis, that he said was super helpful to him. So for the folks who are interested in that, we'll put a link for you in the episode show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Also, if Lee members out there listening are interested in participating in some of Lee's fellowships, including some paid opportunities, log in at educationalequity.org slash fellowships for a list of current and upcoming opportunities or reach out to your regional contact for more information. As always, the episode show notes include a full transcript, contact information for the guests, and more. Okay, time for a break? Definitely. All right, everyone listening out there, please stick around after the break so that we can hear from you about the awesome things you as Lee members are doing in your own communities. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I'm Atira Griffin, and I'm here to talk to you about Lee's virtual course called Exploring Your Leadership with Lee. Exploring Your Leadership with Lee is designed exclusively for Lee members like you to help you reflect on the unique needs of your community and figure out how your own leadership abilities could best be used. This course takes anywhere from three to six hours to complete, and it's totally self-guided and self-paced. You'll walk away with a clearer vision of equity and a deeper understanding of the pathways through which leaders can support their communities and make an impact. If you're a Lee member and the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course piques your interest, please log in at educationalequity.org. Click the virtual content link on the right of your member homepage, and then select the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course to begin. This course is for all Lee members with all levels of experience. It's totally free, and best of all, it is designed to fit into your busy life. Once again, log in at educationalequity.org and click virtual content on the right to find the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee link. We look forward to helping you discover the next steps in your leadership journey. Hey everyone, thanks for sticking around with us. This Members in Action report highlights a longtime Lee member from California who has recently been meeting a lot of challenges head on. Yes, I'm Tanya Ortiz Franklin, an LA Unified School Board member for the district that I grew up in, where I was a Teach for America Corps member, and where I've spent really my whole career serving schools uh, for LA Unified District 7. With a lifetime of experience working in her community, Tanya recently joined the school board in December of 2020, in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic but she hasn't let that slow her down. Um, I'll say as a school board member, I've already passed two resolutions and surprisingly they were unanimous. Um, One around moving our district toward mastery learning and grading, which is really shaking up the traditional compliance oriented um, ways that we grade in in most secondary schools um, and also a resolution on closing the digital divide. And that uh, was was not as controversial because a lot of our kids just need long-term internet, um, broadband to be specific. Um, But some of my colleagues were like, we don't want low cost. We only want free. And that was actually better. I was like, sure, let's figure out how to get to free broadband for all of our high need kids. (laughs) So that was exciting. 
Just like the students they were supporting, Tanya and her collaborators also had to work remotely to get these resolutions completed. It was totally great, but it was a messy editing process on a Word document on Zoom at 8 p.m. on a Tuesday night after a meeting that started at 9 a.m. So it was hard. <laughs> and then when the resolutions passed, the subsequent celebrations were done remotely as well. You know, and I have been to school board meetings before the pandemic, and when something passed and was celebratory, the school board members sometimes would go outside to a big crowd of students or community members who had been advocating, right? So that part we're missing <laughs> during the pandemic. The celebration was via text and Slack. <laughs> While the need to stay remote has made some aspects of Tanya's job more difficult, she's also seen the bright side of the situation. One really amazing thing actually about um, being a school board member during the pandemic is all of the Zoom school visits. I can see four, six, eight schools in a day, talk to the principal, observe instruction, meeting, uh, do a meeting with parents, go to a student assembly, you know, all of these things that I would have had to drive literally 15 miles across LA from the top end of my district to the bottom in traffic on the 110. <laughs> Tanya's glass half full outlook and optimistic attitude is infectious. So it's no wonder that she's been able to collaborate so effortlessly to achieve so much early success. You know, I joke with people when they say, you know, what's your secret to sustainability or how do you self-care? And I'm like, it's all the things your primary care provider tells you to do. I get sleep, I eat vegetables, I try to work out, drink lots of water. Um, and so I don't know if it's one of those things or if it's all of those things combined. Just when you take care of yourself, you can take care of others and you can really prioritize the work. Once again, that was Lee member Tanya Ortiz-Franklin from the Los Angeles region. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, think about sharing it with a friend or colleague or just leaving us a review. You can be alerted of new episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Centeno. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks for pulling up a seat at the leader's table. Be well, continue to stay safe out there, and until next time.